Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 34, 1 Kings chapters 21 and 22. Well, we stopped in 1 Kings chapter 21 with the unjust execution of Navot, the owner of a piece of land that the wicked and self-serving king of Israel wanted for his own enjoyment. And this land was adjacent to Ahaz and Jezebel's favorite palace, which was located in the lush and serene Jezreel Valley. Uh, when King Ahav approached Nebot with the proposition of either buying his land with money or trading with him for another piece of property, Nebot was indignant. And he boldly told Israel's king that such a thing was impossible for him because it was the land of his heritage. That is, the vineyard grew on his ancestral family tribal land, land that had been allotted by Moses and Joshua. And the Torah law prohibited selling such property to somebody outside of his clan or tribe. The infantile king went into his palace bedroom, lay sulking in his bed, and refused to eat food. And this, of course, drew the attention of his wicked wife, Jezebel, who promised to remedy this situation for him. Now, Jezebel was always the stronger and the bolder of, of the royal couple, and her solution was to arrange for a false accusation of blasphemy to be leveled at Nevot during some type of contrived religious convocation that involved a fast. The town's leading dignitaries, elders, and judges were invited to this gathering for the purpose of carrying out swift justice. And in a matter of a few hours, Navot lay stoned to death. And Jezebel declared, the deceased's land is forfeit to the state. The minute King Ahav was given this good news, he quit his pouting. And he set out for Navot's vineyard to claim the land. However, as he drove there on his chariot, an old adversary of his suddenly showed up and ruined Ahav's jubilant mood. Let's pick that up at 1 Kings 21, verse 17. 1 Kings 21, verse 17. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, page 397. But the word of Adonai came to Eliyahu from Tishbi. Get up, go down to meet Ahav, king of Israel, who lives in Shomron, Samaria. Right now he is in the vineyard of Navot. He has gone down there to take possession of it. This is what you're to say to him. Here is what Adonai says. You have committed murder. And now you're stealing the victim's property. Also say to him, here is what Adonai says, in the very place where dogs licked up the blood of Navot, Dogs will lick up your blood. Yours. And Ahab said to Eliyahu, Oh, my enemy, you found me. And he answered, Yes, I have found you. Because you have given yourself over to do what is evil from Adonai's perspective. Here, says Adonai, I'm bringing disaster on you. 
I'll sweep you away completely. I'll cut off from Achav every male, whether a slave or free in Israel. I will make your house like the house of Yeroboam. That's Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And like the house of Basha, the son of Achiah, for provoking my anger and leading Israel into sin. And Adonai also said this about Jezebel. The dogs will eat Jezebel by the wall around Jezreel. And if someone from the line of Rechav uh, dies in this city, the dogs will eat him. If he dies in the countryside, the vultures will eat him. Truly, there was never anyone like Achav. Stirred up by his wife Jezebel, he gave himself over to do what is evil from Adonai's perspective. His behavior in following idols was grossly abominable. He did everything the Amorites had done, whom Adonai had expelled ahead of the people of Israel. And Achav, on hearing these words, tore his clothes. He put sackcloth on himself and he fasted. He slept in the sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And then the word of Adonai came to Eliyahu, Elijah, from Tishbi. Do you see how Achav has humbled himself before me? Since he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring this evil during his lifetime. But during his son's lifetime, I'll bring the evil on his house. Well, the venerable Elijah suddenly returns to the scene and he confronts Ahav. Now, we don't know how much time has passed since Eliyahu's encounter with God on Mount Horeb when he essentially resigned his commission as a prophet because of a bad attitude. No doubt he rethought matters. He repented and Yehovah has allowed Elijah to come back into the Lord's service. But, as a much humbled man, it ought to provide us all with great hope when we remember that the Lord did not discard Elijah. Elijah withdrew from the Lord in service to him. But see, there's also a warning in this. It doesn't have to be the end of our service to God because we have erred. But it is possible and likely that some of the great things that could have been ours to do in God's name will be given over to another more willing person. And as we move into 2 Kings, we'll see that indeed Elisha, Elisha will become the preeminent prophet of his day and he will accomplish things that Elijah might otherwise have done. Thus we start finding in verse 19 that the old prophet speaks boldly in the name of the Lord and he no longer invokes himself as having power and authority to bring about calamity as he did when he proclaimed a drought over Israel that lasted for three years and said it would not end until he personally ordered it. And the message that Elijah brings is a stinging prophecy that begins by calling Ahav a murderer and a thief and for doing these despicable things the Lord's oracle says that Ahav will die a grisly death and there will be shameful treatment of his corpse which will be thrown into Navot's vineyard and the dogs will lap up his blood. I mean, I think it can be fairly said that the scriptures paint a picture of Ahav as perhaps the most sinful king ever to rule Israel. 
And yet we're going to find that despite all this, Ahav would take to heart his sins. And the Lord would relent to a degree on his ordained punishments. And rather, some of his terrible sentence would now be carried out upon Ahav's son. Now we've seen this pattern before in the Bible. Thus we're going to find in 2 Kings chapter 9 that it was Ahav's son Yoram, Joram or Jehoram, it goes by that name too, All right, who had his corpse cast upon Navot's former land. Listen, in 2 Kings 9, 24-26, Yehu drew his bow with all of his strength and struck Yoram between the shoulder blades. The arrow went through his heart. He collapsed in his chariot. Pick him up, said Yehu to Bidkar's servant, and throw him into the field of Nevot, the Yezreelay, of Jezreel, in other words. For remember how, when you and I were riding together after Ahav, his father, Adonai, pronounced this sentence against him. Adonai says, Yesterday I saw the blood of Nevot and the blood of his sons, and Adonai also says, I will pay you back in this field. Therefore, pick him up and throw him into the field in keeping with what Adonai said. The great rabbi Maimonides, called the Rambam, writes that the spilling of human blood in an unjust manner, murder, harms the very fabric of human civilization more than any other crime because it is the ultimate crime of human against human in God's eyes. And one of the many biblical proofs of this is that despite his serial acts of rebellion and evil, even committing the most determined idolatry, it was only when he murdered that King Ahab was finally condemned to death by Jehovah. But also notice that Ahab didn't personally participate in Nevot's execution. Nor was he even present at that phony blasphemy trial. Even more, it was his wife, Jezebel, who thought up this entire plot and ordered it and carried it out. But Achav knew about it. And he completely condoned it. And as king, he was fully responsible for it. See, it's quite similar to King David when he arranged things so that Bathsheba's husband Uriah would be conveniently killed in battle. That is, it was even an enemy soldier who struck the fatal blow upon Uriah. But David wanted it, and he orchestrated it. And so Uriah's blood was on David's head. And the price he paid for it was that Bathsheba's first child would die. And David would never be allowed to accomplish the thing that David so greatly desired to achieve, the building of the first temple. God's kings and leaders bear the greatest responsibility among humans on earth. They also receive the greatest accolades, reap some of the greatest rewards, even, even heavenly blessings when they do what is right in the Lord's eyes. And because leadership on earth is so difficult and challenging, 
and the temptations of power and authority can be so overwhelming, it seems as if Jehovah will often show greater mercy to his kings and to his leaders. And yet, in the end, these kings and leaders are going to be held accountable, not just for their own sins, but for the communal sins of the group or the nation that they lead. So the sword cuts both ways. Now verse 20 makes it clear that Ahav sees Elijah as an enemy and as an adversary. And this is because it seems as though where other kings have prophets that bring them good tidings and proclaim happy things to them, all Elijah ever does is bring divine oracles of judgment upon Ahav. But the thing is that as Jehovah's prophet, Elijah is merely bringing God's word to the king of Israel. And Ahav hates God's word because it exposes his sin. It exposes his rebellion. See, this is a good illustration of why people of all ages since the giving of the law on Mount Sinai have found reason to despise or declare irrelevant God's commandments of the Torah. It's because looking into the Torah it's like holding a mirror up to our lives. And the reflection is what God sees. Sometimes it's not pretty. We all want to think of ourselves as good people. Righteous people. But most people want to make that evaluation according to our own standards. Ahav wasn't any different. So beginning in verse 21... God's condemnation of Ahav continues by telling him that not only will Ahav's life be terminated, but so will his dynasty end, just as happened with Jeroboam. And further, his wife, Queen Jezebel, is going to die a miserable death. And the wild dogs that always ran around in packs around the outside of city walls would lick up the blood of her wounds. Pretty grisly. And the divine reason for this is because A, Ahav has given himself over to evil. And B, because the wicked couple has led the people of Israel into sin. Mainly the sin of idolatry. Well, a terrible epitaph that none of us would ever want to hear read concerning us is proclaimed about Ahav king of Israel. And I think this is what it's going to be like at the great white throne judgment when our lives are laid bare before us from, from God's perspective and so we'll be judged accordingly. Verse 25 says that he was the worst king ever to rule Israel. That he gave in to his evil wife Jezebel that this led to his worshipping idols and he did everything that God despised even about the Amorites. King Ahab was a sad, violent man who recognized on the one hand that Jehovah was God but at the same time he lived an 
ungodly life. He worshipped false gods. He murdered. He behaved like a people, the Amorites, that God essentially wanted wiped out because they were so abominable in His sight. See, this is another good teaching moment to remind us all that believing in God is not the same thing as trusting in God. Ahav believed in God. But he didn't trust God. Rather, he trusted in idols. He trusted in the ways of the world. James, brother of Yeshua, addresses this matter head-on in one of his more famous quotes in James 2.19. Oh, you believe that God is one? Good for you! The demons believe it too. The thought makes them shudder with fear. See, simply believing that God exists essentially only makes one not an atheist. But that's about it. There's no other merit imputed upon us for mere belief in God. As James said, even the demons believe that. And so just as the demons shudder in fear at the thought that God is and yet they are, by definition, incapable of doing any other than giving their trust and allegiance to the evil one. So in verse 27, we find Ahav performing the customary Jewish rites of repentance and mourning, tearing one's clothes and then wearing sackcloth. And although this was real, it was also shallow and it would be of no long-lasting effect, and he'd quickly return to his evil master. You know, it's fascinating to me that when Elijah observes Ahav's dejected demeanor and his behavior as a result of God's prophetic curse, the Lord now uses this as a teaching moment for Elijah. The Lord says something to Elijah that's not intended to be relayed to the king. But rather, it was like it was on Mount Horeb. It was personal between God and Elijah. And what the Lord says is, in verse 29, Do you see how Ahav has humbled himself before me? Since he has humbled himself before me, I'll not bring this evil during his lifetime. But during his son's lifetime, I will bring evil on his house. See, as I mentioned earlier, since Ahav is king of Israel, which is a portion of God's people, even though he bears great responsibility and will suffer great accountability as Israel's leader, it seems to be God's way to offer some measure of mercy whenever possible. Even if only for a few brief days Ahav has humbled himself before God, it is sufficient to delay some of God's sentence upon him and kick the can down the road to the next generation of Ahab's family. Despite all that, the full measure of justice that God promised will happen because God is holy and His justice demands it. And the Lord is explaining all of this to Eliyahu who it seems has always had trouble showing mercy and being gentle 
Remember the symbolism of the wind and the earthquake and the fire back on Mount Horeb? See, Elijah's temperament was to be rigid and severe and often his first thought was to punish. Thank heavens that's not God's temperament. Let's move on to chapter 22. 1 Kings chapter 22. For three years, there was no war between Aram and Israel. And then in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. The king of Israel said to his servants, Are you aware that remote Gilad belongs to us, yet we're doing nothing to recover it from the king of Aram? And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to attack remote Gilad? And Jehoshaphat answered the king of Israel, I'm with you all the way. Think of my troops and horses as yours. But Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, First, we should seek the word of Adonai. So the king of Israel assembled the prophets, about 400 men, Should I attack remote Gilad, he asked of them, or should I hold off? And they said, Attack! Adonai will hand it over to the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Besides these, isn't there a prophet of Israel, a prophet of Adonai here that we can consult? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Yes, there is still one man through whom we can consult Adonai, Michiao, the son of Yimlah. But I hate him, because he doesn't prophesy good things for me, only bad. Jehoshaphat replied, The king shouldn't say such a thing. And then the king of Israel called an officer and said, Quickly, bring Michal the son of Yimlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat the king of Judah were each sitting on his throne, dressed in their royal robes, on a threshing floor at the entrance to the gate of Shomron, Samaria. And all the prophets were there prophesying in their presence. And Zedekiah, the son of Canaanah, had made himself some horns out of iron. And he said, This is what Adonai says. With these you will gore Aram until they're destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied the same thing. Go up, attack Ramat Gilead. You'll succeed. For Adonai will hand it over to the king. And the messenger who had gone to call Michal said to him, Here now, the prophets are unanimously predicting success for the king. Please, let your word be like one of them. Say something good. Michal answered, As Adonai lives, whatever Adonai says to me is what I will say. And when he reached the king, the king asked of him, Michal, should we go up and attack remote Gilead or should we hold off? And he answered, Go up. You'll succeed. Adonai will hand it over to the king. The king said to him, How many times do I have to warn you to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of Adonai? And then he said, Okay, I saw all Israel scattered over the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And Adonai said, These men have no leader. Let everyone go home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you? He wouldn't prophesy any good things about me, just bad. And Michal continued, Therefore hear the word of Adonai. I saw Adonai sitting on his throne with the whole army of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And Adonai asked, Who will entice Ahav to go up to his death at remote Gilead? And one of them said, Do it this way, and another do it that way. And then a spirit stepped up and stood in front of Adonai and said, I'll entice him. And Adonai asked, How? And he answered, I will go and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all of his prophets. 
And Adonai said, you will succeed in enticing him. Go, do it. So now Adonai has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. And meanwhile, Adonai has ordained disaster for you. Then Zidkiah, Zedekiah, the son of Canaanah came up and he slapped Mikiah in the face and he said, And how did the spirit of Adonai leave me to speak to you? And Mikiah said, Oh, you'll find out the day you go into an inside room trying to hide. And the king of Israel said, Seize Mikiah, take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and Yoash, the king's son. Say, the, king's, the king says, Put this man in prison, feed him only bread and water and not much of that, till I return in peace. And Mikiah said, If you return in peace at all, Adonai has not spoken through me. And then he added, Did you hear me, you peoples, all of you? So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to remote Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I'll disguise myself and go into battle. But you, you put on your robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and he went into battle. Now the king of Aram had ordered the 32 chariot commanders, don't attack anyone of either high or low rank, only the king of Israel. So when the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, they said, this must be the king of Israel. And they turned to attack him. But Jehoshaphat gave a yell so that the chariot commanders saw he wasn't the king of Israel and they stopped pursuing him. However, one soldier shot an arrow at random and it struck the king of Israel between his lower armor and his breastplate. So the king said to his chariot driver, turn the reins and take me out of the fighting. I'm collapsing from my wounds. But the fighting grew fiercer that day, and they propped the king upright in his chariot, facing Aram until he died in the evening, with blood streaming from his wound onto the floor of the chariot. And around sundown, a cry spread out through the ranks, Every man to his own town, every man to his own land. So the king died, and he was brought to Shamron. And there... Uh, and, and they buried the king in Shomron, and they washed the chariot at the pool of Shomron where the prostitutes bathed. And the dogs licked up his blood in keeping with the word Adonai had spoken. Other activities of Ahab's reign, all of his accomplishments, the ivory palace he built, all the cities he built are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. So Ahab slept with his ancestors, and Akaziah, his son, became king in his place. Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, began his reign over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he began to rule, and he ruled 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azuvah, the daughter of Shlichi. And he arrived in the manor, he lived in the manor of, his, of uh, Asa, his father. He did not turn away from it, doing what was right from Adonai's perspective, although the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and presented offerings on the high places. Jehoshaphat made peace with the king of Israel. Other activities of Jehoshaphat, all of his power that he demonstrated, how he made war, are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. He rid the land of the male and female cult prostitutes remaining from the time of his father Asa. There had previously been no king in Edom, but now a deputy was made king. And Jehoshaphat built some large Tarshish ships to go to Ophir for gold. 
but they didn't make the voyage because they were wrecked at Etzion Gever. Achasya, the son of Achav, suggested to Jehoshaphat that his men should go to sea with Jehoshaphat's men, but Jehoshaphat would not agree. So Jehoshaphat slept with his ancestors and was buried with his ancestors in the city of David, his ancestor. And Jehoram began his, became king in his place. Ahaziah, the son of Ahav, began his reign over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he ruled for two years over Israel. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective, living in the manner of his father, his mother, and Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, by which he led Israel into sin. He also served Baal, and he worshipped him. And he made Adonai, the God of Israel, angry in keeping with everything his father had done. The first verse says that for three years there had been no war between Aram and Israel. That means that the alliance between Ben-Hadad of Syria and King Ahab of Israel had held firm from the day that Ahav had captured Ben-Hadad in battle, then called him my brother, then made a peace treaty with him and freed him. And it remained so up until the time of our story that begins in chapter 22. But that doesn't mean that Israel or Syria had been nations at peace during that same time. See, Israel had only months earlier fought an important war to blunt the aggression of Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. Note that Assyria is not the same nation as Syria. In fact, Syria and Israel fought side by side against Shalmaneser. And they won a decisive battle at Karkur, located on the east bank of the uh, Orontes River that runs right up here. You see some, here's Damascus, down here you see Samaria, Jerusalem, so it's north. Now Shalmaneser had empire building in mind, and he was on the march to gain more territory. And in fact, he had already conquered a number of smaller nations up in Mesopotamia to to begin his, creating his vision of an Assyrian empire. Now you're going to recall that one of the reasons that Ben-Hadad had invaded Israel's capital of Samaria some years earlier was that Israel was an enemy on its southern border and Assyria was an enemy on its northern and eastern borders and such a situation just presented too much of an existential threat for Syria to let it stand. So Ben-Hadad had calculated that Israel would be the easier opponent to control. So he invaded them with a numerically superior force, but miraculously he lost. Now ironically, that loss resulted in a peace treaty with Israel, and now these two nations work together to defeat Assyria, the much larger threat to the region. Well, verse 2 reports that the king of Judah was at this time Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, and that he paid a state visit to King Ahab up in Israel. And although we're not told in this chapter how it is 
that Ahav and Jehoshaphat had begun these friendly relations. We find out in the book of Second Chronicles, chapter 18, that they had become allied through marriage. That is, Jehoshaphat's son, Joram, had married Ahav's and Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah. The only purpose for this arranged marriage was to create a strong alliance between Judah and Israel. So what we find is that for many years before Jehoshaphat ventured up to Israel, Judah and Israel were on peaceful terms. But Jehoshaphat wanted to cement a yet closer relationship. Ahav and Jezebel agreed and so their offspring married. And again, while the scriptures don't necessarily give a particular reason for Jehoshaphat making his state visit to Israel, the context seems to indicate it wasn't merely for pleasure or for diplomatic purposes. Rather, it was to explore a possible battle plan, utilizing their joint forces to take the city of remote Gilead away from Aram. See, there was nothing in this peace treaty between Israel and Ben-Hadad that specifically said they had to give remote Gilead back to Israel. However, this was an important city because it was strategically located, here's remote Gilead, along the king's highway, trade route. Whoever controlled remote Gilead controlled commerce along that section of the trade route. They could extract taxes from traveling merchants. They could more effectively protect their own merchants and government shipments. They could ban certain products that they wanted their own nation to produce and control to the exclusion of all others. Remote Gilead was in Gad's former territory to the east side of the Jordan River. Here's the Jordan. So for Ahav to say that remote Gilead belonged to us, this meant it used to be Israeli territory. He was appealing to Jehoshaphat as a descendant of Jacob, not as either a Judahite or as one of the ten northern tribes. And he was saying that remote Gilead was territory allotted by Moses, so it was Hebrew, Hebrew ancestral land. Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat was all in. He agreed to go to war in concert with Ahav and said that he would contribute some number of troops from Judah. But he had one hesitation. He wanted to seek the word of Jehovah. In other words, Jehoshaphat wanted to use either a priest or a prophet to discern the will of God so that he would know the outcome of the battle in advance. That was completely typical for a Middle Eastern monarch of that era. Now, King Ahav agreed to this, and in verse 6, he called for an assembly of 400 of his prophets in order to divine an answer. Should I attack remote Gilead or not? He asked them, and they unanimously said, Attack! The Lord will hand it over to the king. <clears throat> now, the Hebrew word used in this passage for Lord is Adonai. It's a generic term, meaning Lord or Master. So we should not think that they necessarily had Yehovah in mind. 
but might have. Or at least they perhaps had in mind their own perception of, of who or what Yehovah was. See, these 400 are not related to the 400 prophets of Baal or Astarte that we had heard about in earlier chapters. This was yet another group of prophets from yet another unidentified prophet colony. And most Hebrew scholars say that these were golden calf worshippers who viewed those golden calf idols of Dan and Bethel the same way Jeroboam had a few few decades earlier that they were representations or molten images of Jehovah. Now interestingly, King Jehoshaphat wasn't comfortable with either the prophets of their answer and he wanted to know isn't there at least one old school prophet of Jehovah still around here in Israel? As opposed to all these new politically correct groups of prophets who are just basically yes men for their king and queen? Apparently, Elijah hadn't resurfaced yet. So even the most, as the most obvious choice, King Ahab didn't mention him because he had no idea where he was. So, he did think of one prophet of Jehovah that was still around. A fellow named Michal, son of Yimlah. But I really don't like that guy, says Ahav, because he always says bad things are going to happen. Joseph had told Ahav he shouldn't say things like that about a true prophet of Jehovah, and so Ahav relented and he called for an officer to go and get Micha, which is the name we usually find in our Bibles, Micha. Now it's important that we understand that pagans, no doubt Ahav included, believed that prophets didn't only announce the will of the gods, but they also influenced the gods and could even get the gods to do the will of the prophets. Ahav hated Mikiel because he wouldn't get on the team and tell the king what he wanted to hear. The king believed that when Micha prophesied something bad, he could bring it about by, by getting God to do his will. Thus the king had imprisoned Micha so he couldn't prophesy bad things to the king. And therefore in his muddled thinkings, bad things wouldn't happen. <clears throat> Well, when Michiao arrives, the two kings are sitting together on their thrones near the city gates of Samaria, Shimron. And apparently this area was also used as a threshing floor because of its flatness and its hardness. Now, although it also served as, as the town square where court was held and deals were concluded, it, this one was located just outside the city gates where a breeze could blow through in order for the grain to be winnowed. But in the hot summer, which is probably the season of our story, it was much cooler than being inside of a walled city that blocked any breezes. The 400 prophets were all prophesying, meaning they were chanting and swaying and engaged in all manner of ecstatic activity. One can only imagine the noise and chaos going on here. Suddenly, one particular prophet emerges. Zidkiah, Zedekiah, 
son of Canaanah. And whether he was the head of this particular prophet guild or was from another one, we're not told. But he invokes the name of Yehovah. And he uses a rather standard prophet protocol by saying, These are the words of Yehovah. Now he had fashioned a pair of animal horns as symbols using metal. And he used them as a metaphor. And he said that Israel would gore Syria until they're destroyed. Now see, this line of thought, no doubt, was taken from the Torah. Because in Deuteronomy 33, we're told this. And with the best from the mountains of old, with the best from the eternal hills, with the best from the earth and all that fills it, and the favor of him who lived in the burning bush, may blessing come on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. His firstborn bull glory is his. His horns are those of a wild ox. With them he will gore the peoples, all of them, to the ends of the earth. These are the myriads of Ephraim. These are the thousands of Manasseh. Well, here they were in the territory of the Joseph tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim. Ephraim, Israel, it was now actually now starting to be known. And they were about to go on, go on, attack, uh, go on attack an enemy. So, Sidkiah borrows the metaphor of the wild ox horns from the Torah and he uses it as a sign from God of victory over Aram. Now we probably would be right to assume that the two kings knew of this scripture verse. They wouldn't have had much impact on him otherwise. And the other prophets agreed in unison with Zedekiah and once again invoking Jehovah's name repeated that Israel would win handily at remote Gilead. Needless to say, King Ahab was thrilled since these prophets were echoing what he wanted to hear. Now he was no doubt feeling his oats because over the past few years Ahab had known three miraculous and unlikely military victories. Twice over Aram, once over this growing behemoth called Assyria. And the name of Ahab would have carried much fear and admiration in the Middle East. So by combining his forces with Jehoshaphat's, remote Gilead was bound to be a pushover. And besides, he was feeling invincible right now. Well, the guard who had fetched Michal from his prison cell saw what was happening, and knowing that the king hated Micah because he always seemed to be a wet blanket, he tried to give some friendly advice. Just go with the flow. Go with the flow. Can't he see that these 400 prophets are making the king happy by predicting such a grand victory. Just say what they're saying. Say something good for a change. But that party killer, Mika, told the guard he was going to say whatever Jehovah told him to say. Now one can imagine the guard heaving a big sigh about now, shaking his head in disgust at Mika when if he'd only compromise, just compromise, the king would be happy, the 400 prophets would be happy, and Mika might even get released or even rewarded. Let's end today's lesson with this thought. It's man's way to compromise, not God's. It is man's way to be a people pleaser.
Not God's. But this human desire to compromise has significantly infected and affected the modern church such that not to compromise is today seen as mean-spirited, intolerant, and perhaps backward and unintelligent. So many pastors and preachers, teachers, operate their congregations today through compromise and consensus so as not to rock the boat. Others are concerned with not using God's word to chastise or to offend their flock, heaven forbid, but rather to go along to get along so that people will keep coming and everybody will be happy. I'm okay, you're okay. No one wants to hear that their behavior or theology is wrong-minded or what they call good is evil or vice versa. But when I refer to the negative effect of compromise on the body of Christ, I'm not referring to issues and decisions that involve but human preferences. What color do we paint the building? Do we have carpet or tile on the sanctuary floor? What times and days should we meet and have services? Should we have free coffee or should we charge a little bit for it? Should children be allowed in with the adults in the main service or should they be separated? Now, I'm speaking about moral matters of divine biblical command that ought never to be compromised even if half the congregation left or it created dissension. Do we acknowledge Yeshua as Savior? Or could it be another? Is there one way to salvation or might there be many paths to God? Is Israel still God's chosen people or has the Gentile church replaced them? Should we see the Palestinians as victims of Israel and side with them? Or should we stand with Israel and declare their inalienable right to their own land? Is Jehovah God? Or is Allah God? Or are they one and the same? Is one religion's holy book as worthy as the other? See, to compromise on preference is to seek godly peace. To compromise on God's immutable laws and principles is sin. Mika would rather spend the rest of his life in prison or even lose his life altogether than to compromise on God's word so that he can get along better with the world or even his peers. May it be so with each of us as Messiah's followers today. We'll continue next time.